Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at the relationship between three very powerful countries, China, India, and the United States. My guest is Tanvi Madden, author of a history of the Delhi-Washington-Beijing relationship called Fateful Triangle. She's a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington. So, how will the Fateful Triangle shape the 21st century? Earlier this month, the foreign ministers of China and India, Wang Yi and Subramanian Jaishankar, held talks aimed at diffusing the lingering anger and tensions left behind after a deadly clash between Indian and Chinese troops in the Himalayas last summer. This is the location where Indian and Chinese troops faced off on Monday evening. A face-off that sent temperatures soaring higher than ever during the four-month standoff and ignited a ferocious war of words. The recent talks between India and China have done little to diffuse the tension. The Indian side made it clear that Delhi's still unhappy, accusing China of unilaterally changing the status quo along the two countries' disputed border. The standoff between India and China is closely observed in Washington. Successive US presidents, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, have gone out of their way to woo India. Lloyd Austin, President Biden's Defence Secretary, went to Delhi as part of his first overseas trip after his confirmation. I'm pleased to report that Minister Singh and I had a very productive discussion on a number of security interests that are important to our two countries. India, in particular, is an increasingly important partner among today's rapidly shifting international dynamics. In the Cold War between the US and the USSR, India remained non-aligned. But now people are talking about a second Cold War, this time between the US and China. And it looks like India is tilting clearly towards Washington and away from Beijing. When I got Tanvi Madden on the line from the US, I started by asking her if last year's bloodshed on the border had led to a decisive shift in Indian attitudes towards the rise of China. I think that's right. I I think there was, along with the border crisis, it's what I describe as the one-two punch, with the the first punch being China's handling of COVID, which especially the lack of transparency at the beginning. And you have a number of Indians who hold China responsible for the pandemic um, to this day. After that comes the boundary crisis, and then these the first kind of combat deaths uh, with China at the border in forty-five years. Indian. Policymakers in particular had always seen China as a challenge, or at least still uh, since the mid-50s, mid to late 50s. But what I think they finally, this last year has been an eye-opener in the sense that they always thought they had time, that they could, through a mix uh, of engagement, developing economic ties, uh, working with China on global governance issues, 
that they could actually incentivize the Chinese to work with them, not upset the border situation. I think that has has gone. You've seen that attitude shift where there is now zero trust in the relationship that China will stick to any agreements because India sees these border agreements as being violated. And you do see this sense that this China challenge is very acute. It is in the here and now against the backdrop of a growing capabilities gap between China and India. Just to give you one factoid, 30 years ago, you had India and China having economies the same size. Today, the Chinese economy is five times that of India. What exactly does India fear? I mean, obviously, there is this border dispute, but they're both vast countries. I don't think anyone's envisaging a full-scale Chinese invasion. But I suppose there are other pressure points, close relationship between China and Pakistan, water, or is there there's something else? Uh, what's their biggest concern when it comes to China? I think you're right. Today, you could say you could solve the boundary dispute between China and India, and there's no prospect of that. But even if you did, there are a number of other issues in the relationship. Now, what the Indian side would argue is that one of the major um, points, which is kind of more strategic, is that the two sides have very different visions of the region. And by the region, I mean Asia. They believe, and government officials have alluded to this, even without naming China, that they see China as wanting a unipolar Asia where China gets to set the rules uh, and behave the way it wants. Whereas they say that they want to see a multipolar Asia where a number of powers and all the regional countries get to decide on what the rules are and how countries should behave. And so there's this kind of fundamentally, or from the Indian perspective, a disconnect in the view of the region. I, I do think you also see in India a sense that China is actively trying to harm or hinder Indian interests and to prevent it from rising on the global stage. Whereas the Chinese see India as aligning to Chinese, the detriment of Chinese interests, India is aligning with its major rival, the United States, and not just its major rival, the United States, but also with countries like Japan and Australia, whether bilaterally or through the quadrilateral that those four countries have. And so both sides essentially see each other as having few converging interests, though they do have some, and actively working against each other's interests. And within that, you can see all the other differences you mentioned, which is whether it's uh, China's deepening relationship with Pakistan, China's uh, increasing influence in India's neighborhood, uh, whether it's Chinese concerns about Dalai Lama and Tibetans being in, in India, all this comes within that broader concern that each side has about each other of just not trusting that the other side has their best interests at heart. You mentioned uh, India's growing closeness to the United States, and you're based in Washington. And obviously, for the Biden administration, they made it pretty clear that China is their central preoccupation. Given that, how crucial is the relationship with India now to the United States? It is quite crucial, and the administration has made that evident in the amount of kind of time and attention they've paid to the India relationship, particularly on the defense and security side in its first six months. Despite COVID, I don't think we've seen before an administration hit the ground running on the India relationship so quickly and at a, a, at a pretty high level. So you saw, for example, Secretary of Defense Austin go very speedily into the administration to India. You saw the Quadrilateral Leader Summit, which was the first kind of multilateral summit that President Biden hosted. And you've seen a number of visits and engagement 
at the working level as well, as well because it's become very regular for the two foreign ministers or the foreign minister and the secretary of state uh, to talk on the phone. And it's not just in the defense and security space. You're seeing discussions on economic issues like supply chains, critical and emerging technologies, and even issues like climate change. So I do think, especially on the China side, an administration that uh, sees in India that sometimes more so than some U.S. allies is is has similar concerns about China, particularly geopolitically. Both sides being concerned that China's behavior is against the rules-based order uh, in certain instances, and they're willing to do something about it. India, on the other hand, however, does not do certain things that uh, the Biden administration would want, uh, where I think the Biden administration has found, for example, European allies or Canada or the UK as much more conducive to whether it's, you know, the discussion today about cyber hacking or human rights and democracy issues, where not just India, but Japan and Australia tend to be a little bit more cautious about naming China and criticizing it. But I do think the Biden administration sees India as a crucial part of its Indo-Pacific strategy uh, and so has spent uh, a lot of time on the relationship in the first six months. I mean, you mentioned human rights and democracy concerns vis-a-vis China. And of course, that's the uh, central theme that Biden has kind of spoken of repeatedly when he talks about China, that this is a battle between democracy and authoritarianism. One of the things that Indian and US leaders often like to say is, you know, they're two of the world's great democracies. But as you know, a lot of Indians and outsiders are now concerned about the Modi government's respect for civil liberties. I think uh, Freedom House downgraded India to only partly free in its most recent report. How much does that concern the Biden administration? Is it something they're debating? You know, before the Biden administration came to office in the transition period, there was a debate on whether or not an administration that was even in the in the campaign and the transition, emphasizing kind of democracy and human rights issues, what the effect of that would be on the U.S.-India relationship. And some argued there'd be no effect because India was, uh, especially strategically, that it had a utility for the U.S., but also commercially in other spaces. And so the administration would not do anything. And then there were others who'd say it it would have a major impact because the administration was very focused. And what we've seen is kind of somewhere in between. What we've seen in terms of the Biden administration's concern and behavior is that they have been kind of more pragmatic from the strategic side, where they see, as we just discussed, India is key to their strategic objectives in the Indo-Pacific and vis-a-vis China, uh, but also to some of their other priorities like climate change and global health security. But you do, I think, have this concern about some of these uh, steps that the Modi government has taken. And I think they do raise those concerns privately. Uh, This is something previous administrations have done as well, where they think it is more effective. Now, it's also perhaps more convenient for them to do it because they realize that if they do bring these uh, issues up publicly, there's a chance that it won't have any effect. And on top of that, it could affect India's willingness to do things with the U.S. I will say there's a broader discussion about, you know, whether this affects, even if it does, it's not a binary question of, Uh, the state of Indian democracy and liberalism could affect the pace and tone of the U.S.-India relationship. India has had the advantage in the U.S. of 
having multiple constituencies for the relationship. And these questions tend to limit uh, or reduce the enthusiasm of some of those uh, constituents, particularly on Capitol Hill amongst members of Congress. And in some ways, you do hear some questioning uh, also from the pragmatist on the strategic and economic side in terms of what will be the impact of a country that is focused on internal dissension and instability, what kind of actor would it be on even these strategic and economic uh, issues? So I, I think it is a factor and it is a concern for the administration, but I think other concerns have trumped these concerns. And I think they think they'd just be more effective if they address these issues privately. And I think what we've seen with the Modi government is they have made some steps to alleviate these concerns, including some easing of restrictions in Kashmir. We've also seen them, though, move some political hot potatoes or geopolitical hot potatoes on the domestic politics side, on the cultural war side. They've just moved them to the state level and left it to states to do rather than do it at the federal level because it would be controversial. One intriguing aspect of it all, of course, is that is that the vice president, Kamala Harris, is of Indian descent on her mother's side. But the Indians, as far as I can figure out, seem to have a slightly ambivalent relationship with her. I don't know whether it's because she's too liberal for their taste. I, I saw that there was even some denunciation of her sister for whose responsibility. She's obviously, you know, her own person uh, because of stuff she tweeted about farmers' disputes in India. So what's... Uh, what role does Harris play, if any? I think, you know, that is the kind of Kamala Harris question is speaks to a broader kind of view that Indians have of overseas Indians, which include both Indi uh, non-resident Indians and people of Indian origin like Kamala Harris. There are two views. One is, you know, a sense of pride. So you saw a lot of pride, a lot of stories being told people in India kind of, you know, looking up uh, her family, and she still has a lot of family there. Uh, so taking pride in the fact that she's achieved this position, you know, you'll see this in the Indian press, uh, or even, you know, the government officials who will congratulate Indian Americans for major achievements they make. But on the other hand, you know, there's a, there's a certain kind of skepticism, if not disdain, of overseas Indians where there's this sense that they have left or they shouldn't be telling Indians what to do anymore. But there's also, I think, in the political and policy space, a sense that, for example, it's not just the vice president. For the longest time, you heard, you'd hear Indians say, Indian commentators and the elite say, the U.S. shouldn't send us an ambassador who is an Indian American or shouldn't appoint an assistant secretary of state working on South Asia who's an Indian American. And this was this weird attitude that these Indian Americans would somehow be less, uh, would be biased in the sense of they need to show their, that they didn't have dual loyalties and so would be, take steps that were against India's interest. And so it's a bit convoluted, but there is a skepticism. There was a fairly prominent commentator who, not about Kamala Harris, but it tells you the kind of prism through which she is seen who said about think tanks and the policy space in Washington that there were too many people of Indian origin writing on the U.S.-India relationship. Uh, and what he really wanted to see was more true blue or real Americans write. And by that, he meant white Americans. And so I think Kamala Harris has seen through that prism where there's some skepticism about her saying she's going to be holier than thou. She's going to you know, take some steps against India because she'll have to show that she's American. 
But at the same time, I will say there is a lot of pride also in India about the achievements that she has uh, she has had. Historically, India has always had a very significant relationship with Russia throughout the Cold War. Now, Russia is getting closer, much closer to China. How, how, how do the Russians fit into all of this? Well, the, it is not your mother's India-Russia relationship anymore. Indians see Russia as an important partner. They are unlikely to give it up, as uh, the U.S. might want to see, uh, though I think folks in Washington are pretty realistic about what makes India important or Russia important to India. India sees Russia as a partner, particularly in the defense space, where it continues to be a supplier of equipment, spare parts, and certain technologies that other countries will not provide uh, India. They also see it as an important partner in the energy space, and they see it as important because of its membership in various international and regional organizations, including the UN Security Council. And so at the very least, India wants to keep Russia on side so it doesn't actively harm India's interests in these organizations. Having said that, you have seen in recent years, because there's less strategic convergence between Russia and India on the question of China, where there are limits to what India and Russia can do together. On the one hand, India sees Russia, has historically seen Russia as important as a balance to China, as part of its balancing strategy against China. Uh, But now they see a, a Russia that is becoming ever closer to India's main adversary. And so that has put some strain on the relationship. Um, you've seen a Russia that has not taken, uh, t- you know, stayed neutral during the India-China crisis. This is not the kind of position India would have liked to have seen, but they understand that is where Russia is. This in turn, the fact that India, despite these concerns, continues to maintain this relationship with Russia, is, however, affecting the U.S.-India relationship because India plans to purchase a major defense platform, a missile defense system, which Turkey has already purchased, the S-400. And when this purchase, the payments have been made, delivery of the platform is supposed to start later this year, and that could potentially open India up to sanctions. The likelihood is that the Biden administration will give India a waiver from those sanctions. But nonetheless, it's like a sort of Democles that hangs over Uh, the relationship, because if uh, India, they remember a U.S. that has sanctioned India in the past. 20 years ago, there were U.S. sanctions on India because of its nuclear test. Uh, And so it does does kind of shape the relationship, or it is kind of one of the thorns in the U.S.-India relationship right now. I would say the other is potentially trade. But I think Russia and the S-400 are one source of strain in the U.S.-India relationship, though less so Uh, than before. So finally, just to take a step back, I mean, we've talked quite a lot about how the Indians see things, how the Americans see things. How do you think the Chinese see things? I mean, you know, trying to analyze it from first principles, it seems to me China made a pretty disastrous misstep by clashing with the Indians and really bringing together this quad alliance with the Japanese and the Americans, the Australians. Do you think they are concerned or as far as China's thinking goes, do you think they're reasonably comfortable with where they have India? One of the most baffling questions I have, and I think I'm not the only one, is why would a China that people like Henry Kissinger have told us think very strategically, you know, nine-dimensional chess and all that, why it would push an India that prized 
uh, its strategic autonomy. Why it would push India into US, not just the U.S.'s arms, but to do more with Australia, with Japan, with other countries who are China's rivals or adversaries? Uh, why would you do something so counterproductive with this boundary crisis for territory that might be tactically important, but would you, why would you tank a China-India relationship that at the very least was keeping India from doing certain things with the U.S. and others? The two answers I think one comes up with, either the PLA and the Chinese leadership, because this decision would have come from the top, did not realize what the impact would be. They might have thought, you know, you were going to have an India that would accept a fait accompli, like many in the South China Sea have, because there's a thinking of India as a small country, where India obviously does not think of itself as a small country, and so that they did not understand the consequences of what they were going to do, and they got it wrong. The other view is, I think, what you alluded to is they might not care. And the debate, what we understand from those who have followed this very closely, is that there, there was a debate in China about India, including as the boundary crisis continued, which is that there was a school of thought that said, India is still in play, don't push it into U.S. arms, sort this boundary crisis out, it's just not worth it. The other school of thought has been, and that is the one that has seemed to have taken hold, is that India is already aligned with the U.S. And so it didn't really make a difference what China was going to do. So might as well make things clear right now, show the rest of the world that China could take this action against India and get away with it, and put pressure potentially on countries like the U.S., where in a crisis the U.S. hadn't helped India, and it did, it would raise questions amongst Indians about what good is this relationship. And so so far, this school seems to have prevailed that India is already aligned with the U.S., so China should not hold back from doing certain things, even if it upset India. Um, now, we'll see uh, where Beijing goes from now, because they still seem to be thinking that somehow India will forget that any of this happened and go back to a normal relationship. There's no prospect of that. So I think that's where the Chinese thinking seems to be right now. And they do not seem to be particularly concerned. There might be some concern, for example, about being shut out of the 5G trials or investors being kind of uh, left out of Indian technology sector. But I think it hasn't seemed to have made a difference to their decision making on the boundaries thus far. That was Kanvi Madden of the Brookings Institution ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for listening. I'll be off next week, but the Rachman Review will continue, so please join my colleague, Halita Clark, for more discussion of international affairs. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.